This week on the show, we read the FreeBSD serves Netflix video at 400 gigabits per second presentation from EuroBSDCon, we just heard, using the Rack TCP stack and OpenBSD script to update packages fast, the Plasma System Monitor and FreeBSD, uh, TrueNAS versus FreeNAS and why you should upgrade soon enough, at the auto lock screen on OpenBSD using XIDLE and XLock, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. ESD Now, episode 423, Rack the Stack. Recorded on the 22nd of September 2021. 22nd of September reminds me of Bilbo Baggins' birthday, by the way. Uh, for the nerds out there... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that sort of nerd. Yeah, yeah, it just came to me. Uh, this episode of BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash now for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your geeky host, Benedict Reuschling, knowing too much about Tolkien's work. And I, I'm Tom Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode with fresh headlines. Uh, we have very fresh uh, content from the just finished, at least at the time of this recording, last weekend's EuroBSDCon. And that is uh, one of the, I guess, one of the most prominent talks there, serving Netflix video at 400 gigabits per second on FreeBSD. Yeah, so we, we have a, a follow-up talk by uh, Drew Gallatin for, from Netflix. Um, I think he previously spoke about, I'm not sure if they did serving at 100 gigabits a second. They definitely did one serving at 200 gigabits a second. Um, and so they have um, slides, which we're, we're going to link. Uh, and it was, uh, so I'm told, a great talk. Unfortunately, I missed it at the conference um, uh, about how they've taken FreeBSD from from serving a small amount of traffic, you know, only a 100 gigabit or so a second, um, up to doing almost 400 gigabit a second from a, a single host. Um, and so there's a, a big slide deck here. It's at 97 slides. Uh, I actually wish I'd seen uh, Drew present this because I have no idea how you cover 97 slides in 45 minutes. Um, and so they they have a presentation here where they're talking about the the stack they use in Netflix, uh, and it's a FreeBSD stack. And so they run a content distribution network, so a CDN. They have devices that they, I think they put into point of presence and they have a hardware platform called the uh, Open Connect and they have uh, OCAs, which are Open Connect appliances. And then they, uh, Drew talks about in this presentation, the software stack they've made with FreeBSD and how they deliver so much traffic. And so, First thing we talk about is their, their FreeBSD serving workload. Uh, I'm going to move Benedict. Uh, their FreeBSD serving workload. And so their, their workload is made from uh, FreeBSD current. And I think so Jonathan Looney uh, presented at FOSDEM a couple of years ago. And the, the they basically take FreeBSD current every six weeks. So they're running very bleeding edge FreeBSD. They use the, the Nginx web server. And then they serve video using send file. So the send file system call. And they encrypt it using uh, KTLS, uh, which is kernel TLS. So that allows them to do the encryption parts of TLS inside the kernel, which saves them a round trip into user space. Um, and so Drew in this presentation talks uh, about, I think, three different sets of hardware. And so the first system they present is a, an AMD EPIC-based system. So it's a 7502P ROM. It's a 32-core, 2.5 gigahertz processor 
with a 256 gig of DDR4 memory, uh, eight channels and 128 PCIe Gen 4 lanes. Um, and throughout the presentation, uh, Drew talks about the theoretical amount of bandwidth available on a host, and then the actual amount of bandwidth they're able to, to put out of the host. And so the PCI Gen 4 with 128 lanes offers 250 gigabytes a second of IO bandwidth, or approximately two terabits a second of networking bandwidth, or as it has here in networking units. Uh, they're using Malinux Connect X6, uh, 100 gig um, network interfaces. They offer two full speed 100 gig ports per NIC, and they have two in each machine. Uh, and then he talks about the, the storage, and the storage would be more interesting to people who don't like networks like me. Uh, and they do some uh, initial performance results. So it's a good bit of science. We can start off and do shows that they can do 240 gigabits a second um, from their base. And I think their base is quite quite tuned. Uh, and they found that um, this uh, small result, which is sort of laughable to me because it's an insane amount of traffic, <laughs> um, is, is limited by memory bandwidth. And they determine the memory bandwidth limit by looking at one of the worst commands I've ever seen, uh, AMD UProf PCM, but the camel casing is really difficult to read, um, which I think is um, probably a processor counter based uh, evaluation tool so they can look at the performance workload. Um, and so it continues to show the, the, the data flow. And so data moves from, from disks through memory uh, out to the network card. And there's a little picture of the CPU reading a book here. And somebody on Hacker News pointed out that the book says uh, programming Linux or something. And oh. I had to zoom in 500% to read it. Uh, so it's a, <laughs> it's a nice Easter egg. Um, and so they go into how they can get memory bandwidth. And the big issue is that uh, the memory architecture is, is, is NUMA, which means there's non-uniform access to different parts of memory. And so between the four different nodes on the, the processor, if the memory and the network card are not close together, so not on the right node, you end up limited on the, the interconnect speeds. And so he does the, the master here and he talks about how you can build up the worst case scenario and the, the best case scenario um, and goes into the flow of um, data from disk into memory and from disk into the network card if, if possible. And also talks about how bad things can go because things do get messy. Um, I'm trying not to read 97 slides. So I'm skipping through a bit. Um, and then they talk about KTLS and how KTLS might help. And so, or KTLS offload might help. Um, so KTLS is kernel TLS and TLS is transport layer security. So this is the way we secure web traffic. Um, we have uh, KTLS and FreeBSD, which allows you to do the encryption part inside the kernel, which saves you doing a context switch from the kernel to user space to do crypto, and then from user space back to the kernel to send out the stuff you've encrypted. Uh, KTLS offload is taking this uh, encryption engine and moving it onto the network card. And this saves uh, a round trip uh, from memory via the CPU back to memory. And so the flow of uh, data that Drew shows is from disks into memory, memory to CPU and back, and then to the network card. Um, and you can actually skip some of this out. And if you skip this out, you go from requiring 200 gigabytes a second of memory bandwidth down to 100 gigabytes a second of memory bandwidth. And so you can see how 
cutting out steps like this can be big optimi optimizations as you move things. Um, it talks about something called PCIe in order transmit, which I don't know much about PCIe, so I didn't really follow this. Um, and I think I'm going to skip a bit ahead to the, the cool parts. So on top of the, the AMD ROM platform, you can also look into using um, other processors and other processor architectures. And so another platform that, that Drew considered is the Ampere Ultra. Uh, they had the Mount Snow, which is Q8030, which I think means it is 80... 83 gigahertz ARM Neoverse N1 cores, which is a, an absolute monster of a machine. Uh, eight channels of 256 gigabyte DDR4 memory at uh, 3200 megahertz. Um, again, 128 lanes of Gen 4 PCIe and the same storage and disk configuration. An issue with looking at, uh, this is an ARCH64 machine, uh, which I should say, which the ARM Neoverse should give away. Um, the, the issue here is the performance analysis tools available on the processor um, or through the operating system are just not the same as what you can get on an AMD or I think an Intel platform. And so Drew says it feels like you're driving blind, which I can imagine if you're used to getting a good profile of what's happening between the contention of the cores, it's, it's a big transition. Um, with software KTLS, they had poor performance where poor performance is 180 gigabit a second. <laughs> Um, and with the with the NIC TLS, they, they also had poor performance. They were only managing 240 gigabits a second. And they weren't getting very high CPU utilization. And the NICs were, were saturated and they were getting lots of losses, uh, lots of drops. Um, <laughs> they enabled a feature called extended tags. And this went from 240 gigabits a second to 320 gigabits a second, uh, which is... <laughs> It's so cool. Like I, lo I love hearing these numbers coming out. Um, and then finally, they looked at, uh, uh, oh, not finally, so they looked at a third of four platforms. And so they looked at uh, Intel Ice Lake Xeon, which is um, 36 cores at 2.1 gigahertz, uh, eight channels of 256 gigabytes of DDR4, running at 2933 megahertz, 64 lanes of Gen 4 PCIe. So it's a slightly different configuration. Um, I think different storage, but the same Mellanox cards. Uh, for software KTLS, they did 230 gigabits a second uh, only. Um, and the the BIOS has locked out the PCIe relaxed ordering, so they weren't able to do KTLS NIX performance. On slide 85 of 97, there's a nice plot um, showing the performance between the, the three systems with software KTLS. Um, so the AMD system is managing just, about, just a bit under 300 gigabits a second, the Ampere just under 200 gigabits and Intel just sort of the same amount over 200 gigabits. And then with the AMD and the Ampere systems, the AMD system is just almost pushing 400 gigabits a second and the Ampere is sat at that at 320. And then in, in the saddest thing, there's there's one more thing waiting in the wings, one system they weren't able to test. Um, because, of a, because of a career delay sat on, on a data center floor somewhere, is a, a pro prototype machine uh, spec'd out to do 800 gigabits a second. Uh, and so I really I really hope Drew comes through with a promise and, and talks about this next year. <laughs> Just keeps getting better and better. Oh, I can't wait till we, we get a talk, like a terabit a second of video oh, from one yeah. box. 
for you binge watchers out there. Oh, it'd be amazing. <laughs> Think how much Netflix you could watch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's all running FreeBSD open source software. And most of the changes have been all supported to FreeBSD. So they're not too, um, you know, Netflix specific or video streaming even. They can also be used to other um, purposes. Yeah. And so I, I sort of skipped through this. Uh, I'm trying to find the slide now. Um, where are you, slide? Um, so basically, all of this, all, all of the performance, all the software performance is coming from um, KTLS and Rack and um, the Pacer they have, which are all upstream to FreeBSD. And so the majority of these pieces are available to use if you run stock FreeBSD and can buy uh, a machine this big, but it's all there. Yeah. It's yeah, it's definitely a great uh, engineering masterpiece, if I would use that word. Uh, yeah, and the, the slides explain how they went about it and the problem description, of course. And I'm fairly sure that the EuroBSD folks also will provide recordings later, so you can watch the whole um, presentation that Drew Gallatin gave. All right, let's stay a little bit on networking. Uh, we have using the T the FreeBSD Rack TCP stack from uh, Clara Systems articles, as they do every week, another one. And this one is from a certain Tom Jones, you probably have heard on the show before. Um, so it would be very boring to hear it in his voice. So we agree that I do this part. So um, Tom writes, <laughs> the uh, pluggable congestion control protocols um, have enabled a lot of experimentation and advancement in how TCP reacts to changing network conditions. And these pluggable congestion controls have made it possible to test new congestion control algorithms in a non-binding way. And rather than having to make large sweeping changes to the TCP stack, it is instead possible to load a new FreeBSD kernel module that reacts to congestion events in new and different ways. And that allows different behaviors to be loaded dynamically rather than being controlled by compile time defined uh, if statements. So. Uh, Tom introduces a little bit of why are we actually doing this with a little bit of a background on TCP and congestion control. So Rack, uh, or more properly, the Rack TLP is a pair of algorithms that are designed to improve the performance of TCP when there is packet loss. So it tries to, you know, make the user or the uh, other end experience less packet drops or hey, where is my network traffic going? Um, when sending, TCP must measure the network link to determine how much traffic can be carried by the network, right? So this is happening all the time. Uh, and this varies over time and the size of the estimate is controlled by the length of the path, latency, and the path's capacity or the bandwidth. A classical TCP sender will exponentially increase the amount of traffic it sends into the network. So like, can you do more? Yes. Can you do more? Yes. Can you do more? No, I can't do more. And so um, tries to reach the best performance over time until the receiver indicates uh, that the network is at capacity. And this fast exponential growth period is frustratingly called TCP's slow start. So it's kind of misleading a little bit. But uh, once the end of slow start has been detected, a TCP sender will save this value as a threshold to run slow start to and move to a much slower growing uh, additive increase. And TCP, the, the stack, will react to most recoverable loss signals by halving its sending rate, so 150, 25, and so on, uh, for example, but to non-recoverable loss by reducing its congestion window down to one segment. And when TCP uses the packet loss or uh, occurs, um, reordering and duplicate acknowledgements as signals that indicate network congestion 
the uh, or the internet is a best effort delivery network. When the network is full, it is designed to drop packets. And so TCP uses this loss metric and stand-ins, like duplicate acknowledgements. So make sure that the other side has reached those uh, as the signals that network is too busy. And packets loss can occur for reasons other than congestion. So for example, network links are not perfect. One in a billion events are quite common. These can cause packet corruption leading to packets being dropped. Some link technologies such as radio links are more susceptible to loss. Uh, real loss trends to occur in bursts and it's common that a couple of packets in the middle of a flow will be lost. Uh, because TCP is a reliable in-order stream protocol, so that you can kind of guarantee that the packets were sent are received in the same order, um, that a couple of, yeah, that those losses occur, two things happen at a, as a consequence. First, the data after the missing packets cannot be sent to the application until the gap in the stream is filled. Uh, which leads to a stall and data being transferred from the TCP stack up to the application. And the other one, secondly, the sender will adapt to the loss by greatly reducing its sending rate, which means that one packet loss can lead to a stall while the send detects the loss and arranges to retransmit the data and that the sending rate can be hurt by the loss. And they, uh, over the years, people have developed different um, ways to mitigate this. For example, the TCP SAC or Selective Acknowledgements were standardized in RFC 2018, 2018 uh, in 1996 to help deal with cases where loss happened in the middle of a stream. And this TCP sequential acknowledgement or selective acknowledgement allows the receiver to indicate these gaps in the data stream that it has detected. And uh, SAC is a great performance improvement for TCP, but it is limited to the number of uh, SAC ranges it can signal uh, because TCP option space, uh, there's only so much space available in the header. Now let's go back to RAC or why RAC exists. Uh, RAC TLP is documented by RFC 8985. And there's an abstract that kind of explains what it does or why it's supposed to uh, be used. RAC TLP uses per segment transmit timestamps and selective acknowledgements. It has two parts. Recent acknowledgement, RAC, starts fast recovery quickly using time-based uh, inferences derived from acknowledgement, ACK feedback, and tail loss probe TLB, uh, which leverages RAC and sends a probe packet to trigger the ACK feedback to avoid retransmission timeout RTO. So these events, compared to the widely used duplicate acknowledgements threshold approach, the RAC TLP detects these losses more efficiently when there are the application-limited flights of data lost retransmissions or data packet reordering events. Uh, if it is intended to be an alternative, or it is intended to be an alternative to the DUP-ACK threshold approach, so that's another implementation, and RAC-TLP uh, is uh, replacing that. So RAC-TLP is two algorithms that work uh, together to improve performance for application-limited workloads. So workloads are called application-limited, for example, when their sending performance is not being restricted, by the network bandwidth estimate that TCP makes, and instead are limited by the rate that the application is sending data down to the socket layer. And with the, the recent ACK or RAC algorithm, that allows, allows the connections to respond to isolated loss quickly by using the time-based interfer or inferences to send retransmissions, and this avoids large reductions in the congestion window 
which govern the peak sending rate when these events occur. Rack occurs or allows the video server, for example, to detect the losses quickly and respond, allowing the video player to play the chunk of video back. Ah, okay. And so then there's a section about enabling the Rack stack on FreeBSD if you want to play with that a little bit. And it's pretty straightforward. So in the TCP man page, there's the explanation how you can, you know, document or let the system list what kind of functions it supports. And uh, there's also sysctl net.inet.tcp.functions underscore available, which shows you what this host currently supports. And there uh, in the example, we have a PCB count. PCB stands for the protocol control blocks. And that shows you the features, let's say, um, of the stack. And if that has a certain number or a certain value, tells you that uh, it has a certain functionality implemented. And the rest of the article shows you how you can, you know, enable it, uh, a kernel with the rack stack and play with it a little bit, load that module and, you know, enable the functionality. And in conclusion, Tom writes that uh, rack represents some serious improvements to TCP performance for certain application workloads. It was developed to support a streaming video workload that spends a large portion of its time application limited, but there are uh, reports from Rack on FreeBSD that also offered large performance gain for bulk transfer applications. You will need to evaluate if using the Rack stack helps with your workload and FreeBSD makes it easy to deploy and experiment with. Uh, you can enable the Rack stack on a host and then selectively enable it for applications or time periods, making it reasonably safe to experiment with it in production. Cool. That's something people can try out right away. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. Um, the the thing with packet losses is that um, if, if TCP sees like a packet loss, it halves its sending rate if, yeah. it, if it can't recover the loss. Um, and there was in a presentation at an IETF a few years ago, because I guess every meeting was a few years ago now, um, where someone was talking about how to get to doing single stream 100 gigabit a second. Um, and basically, uh, rack, rack might be one mechanism that could help you get towards this. But um, normal TCPs just can't do it. Like a one in a billion loss at 100 gigabit happens very often. Um, and so, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. It's great seeing... Um, it's great seeing Rack being a big part of Netflix delivering um, 400 gigabit from one box. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, it all comes together. And I mean, nowadays we use, or we want to have these kinds of bandwidth and lossless bandwidth that way. Very nice. So let's uh, jump into our news roundup this week where we have news from OpenBSD about package updates. Yeah, so we have a, a blog post from uh, Celine here. Um, and, and Celine writes, um, package update is a simple shell script meant for OpenBSD users of the stable branches, which is people following releases, to easily keep their packages up to date. It's a good name. Uh, it is meant to be run daily by Cronon servers or, on it, or at boot time for workstations. So you can configure it how you want. Um, so why? Basically, I've explained all this project in the project repository readme. Uh, I strongly think updating packages at boot time is important for workstation users, so the process has to be done fast and efficiently without requiring user agreement. By setting this up, the sysadmin agreed. Uh, as for servers, it could be useful to be running this for a few times a day and using check restart program to notify the admin of some processes required to restart after an update. Um, Okay, too, too long, didn't read. How, how do I do this? Um, so you, you SU, 
um, clone the the repo which is linked, um, copy package update slash package update to use a local bin, and edit crontab, and then that's how you you launch the packet update tool. Oh, well, straightforward. Huh? Yeah, essentially cool. I wonder. I wonder though, you got you got to be sure you're not going to get bad packages through. Could be really scary. <laughs> in a yeah, in, in in regular intervals. But I guess I guess you want if you if you deployed this on a fleet of servers, you'd want them to not be in sync when they did the updates. So oh yes, otherwise have, like, all of them fall over. Pummeled the server at certain. Oh, it's it's the top of the hour. They're they're coming back now. <laughs> yeah, but that's really cool. That's I, I love the idea of of just updating updating all the machines automatically, and then you don't have to worry about changes coming through. Yeah, and you could probably insert some randomness so that they all don't um, start at the same uh, time. Yeah. <laughs> the rest, 59 minutes of silence and then one minute of <laughs> attack-like questions <laughs> or queries. <laughs> but yeah, this is a, a good start. Uh, next, we have news from Adrian de Groot. I think that's how it's pronounced. That, yeah, that uh, about the plasma system. Is it? I think so. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's about Plasma System Monitor and FreeBSD. And he writes, uh, so he's he has done and does, still does work a lot of um, in the KDE space, porting KDE to FreeBSD and in, within KDE itself. And so he writes on his blog that Aryan and David, also other KDE contributors, uh, but he'll name those two because they suffered the brunt of his questions and merge requests. Uh, they have come up with KDE Plasma System Monitor, uh, an application for monitoring system resource usage, sensors, and processes. Uh, it's a successor to the venerable KSYS guard, 14 years between those two posts. Oh, wow. And it has a separate link to that. Uh, and promises better pluggability and a nicer UI. In packaging system monitor for FreeBSD, we had forgotten some bits and pieces, so until today, the application would start, but not actually display anything useful. Oops. Uh, there's lots of new code, and there's a code being moved from one library to another, so there's, an, and there's a comparison shot of the old libraries and old UI and the new tools. So if you click our link in the show notes, you can see the picture in this blog post. CPU usage information is all there, and the new UI in System Monitor gives me much more, or much, much more even, uh, freedom to do UI design, even if I've not used it in the screenshot at all. CPU Monitor widget, which can run in the panel or as a separate widget, is a lovely dancing bar graph in rainbow colors. <laughs> Although I need to be 56 pixels wide in order to display all my cores correctly. Yeah, the more cores you have, the difficult it is to bring them all <laughs> on, on more than one screen. <laughs> So we need bigger monitors. Yeah, it's all catching up. Um, so the screenshot also shows that other things, networking, processes, memory use, are not there yet. So there's plenty left to do. Mostly, I think it's porting existing code over and cleaning it up and making it modernly acceptable for the case system stats library, which now does most of the work. Having the port available at all is just the first step to more uh, merge requests, making it fully worthy successor. That means I need to work together with my KDE friends. Darn. Also, there will be coffee. <laughs> uh, th yes. This tool looks cool. really cool. Yeah. Especially when you have a lot of information to display at the same time. You don't want to, you know, overlap it all. Yeah, I mean, I, I only have four cores in my FreeBSD desktop, but I think I'm going to install this. Yeah. Uh, try it out. See and give feedback. Uh, so that helps the people porting uh, cool applications like this to uh, FreeBSD or KDE. Uh, that's always uh, 
appreciate it. Okay, next up we have uh, a blog post from IX Systems, and it's titled uh, TrueNAS versus FreeNAS and why you should upgrade. Um, FreeNAS reigned as the world's most popular open source software defined storage from 2009 to 2020. During Q3 2020, TrueNAS 12.0 was introduced, which started the transition of FreeNAS merging into TrueNAS. Within a year, TrueNAS is now the number one open source SDS with more than twice the number of systems deployed. The final phase of transition will be to merge the freenas.org site into truenas.com site. While we kick off that process this week, we want to take the opportunity for one last comparative review of FreeNAS and TrueNAS and discuss why now it is time to upgrade if you haven't already. FreeNAS is now known as TrueNAS Core. TrueNAS Core inherited the same free and open source attributes of FreeNAS and has continued to build on that foundation with new features. Below, there is a high level overview of the capabilities of TrueNAS Core. And it is a weird gauge chart that talks about um, from the left, uh, the web UI through the, the storage with ZFS and object storage and block storage, uh, applications, um, and then virtualization. And, and, and it has a little uh, tux and a, and a Windows thing. Uh, and it all sits on top of TrueNAS core, and that all sits on top of uh, any server uh, with an SSD or a, HD, or, or a hard drive. Um, looking beyond, fe beyond features, both the quality and functionality of TrueNAS core are now also substantially superior to FreeNAS 11.3. FreeNAS has been transitioned to legacy status and is no longer recommended for new deployments, which to me is a pretty good reason actually to, to ditch this. So why are FreeNAS and TrueNAS so popular? Well, uh, they both contain file services, block services, object store, applications, ZFS, system management, and hardware flexibility. Um, but there are big differences between the two. With FreeNAS receiving its final update with 11.3, all new feature development is happening on TrueNAS. Beyond that, TrueNAS also adds many technical enhancements that improve the user experience, both now and going forward. And now they have uh, a list of TrueNAS enhancements. Um, a unified TrueNAS core and enterprise. Um, so rather than how it was with TrueNAS Enterprise uh, 11.3 and FreeNAS 11.3, which were separate software images uh, with their own QA and bugs, uh, there's now there's now one software image which will have more encompassing QA and hopefully fewer bugs. Uh, <laughs> enhanced software quality. Um, I think because they've rolled these together, I think they can actually say that because they've got more concentrated effort. Uh, they say, in addition to faster bug resolution, TrueNAS 12 has improved testing and quality. FreeBSD 12.1, Samba 4.12, and OpenZFS 2 uh, are all much better than their predecessors. The common software has allowed an increase in the QA test coverage, resulting in fewer critical issues and generally more reliable experience. Uh, improved OpenZFS performance, better security, more modern hardware because FreeBSD 12 has be much better hardware support. Uh, cloud management, the latest True Command 2.0 uses vastly improved TrueNAS stats collection system that offers per second statistics and better CPU network efficiency. That's really cool. Um, and a path to scale out. And then they go on to say that the upgrades are easy and, and I hope they are. And it's, it's good to see um, it's good to see them continuing to, to talk about FreeBSD and build things on FreeBSD. Oh yeah. And uh, they, given the history that they have now, uh, with the BSDs and it's kind of nice to see the evolution over the years 
let's cover Celine's block one more time in this episode with automatically lock screen on OpenBSD using XIDLE and XLock. And I think that could also be applied to other operating systems using this software. So Celine writes in uh, Celine writes in yet another article of, on her blog. Uh, For security reasons, I like when my computer screen get locked when I'm away and forgot to lock it manually or when I suspend the computer. Those operations are usually native in desktop managers such as uh, XFCE, Mate, or uh, GNOME. But when you use a simple window manager, mm, not so much. Yesterday, I was looking at the XLog man page and found recommendations to use it with XIDLE, a program that triggers a, pro a command when, uh, yeah, well, we don't use a computer. That was the match I required to do something. So XIDLE uh, is simple. You tell it about conditions and it will run a command. Basically, it has three triggers. No activity from the user after dollar timeout. That's the first. The second is a cursor is moved in a screen border to, uh, or a corner for a number of seconds. So that could be active uh, if you're the Mac uh, user. Um, that could be active window corners. And the last one uh, of the triggers is XIDLE receiving a sick user signal. The first trigger is useful for automatic run, usually when you leave the computer and you forgot to lock. Haven't we all? Uh, the second is one that is simple uh, or a simple way to trigger your command manually by moving the cursor in the right place. And finally, the last one is the way to script the trigger. Then she has a section about uh, using both. Reusing the example given in XIDLE, it was easy to build the command line. You would have to use uh, it in your uh, dollar or .x session file that contains instructions to run in your graphical session. So this file is typically in your home directory, sometimes very empty, but you can use it in this way. The following command will lock the screen if you let your mouse cursor in the upper left corner of the screen for five seconds, or if you're inactive for 1,800 seconds, like 30 minutes. Uh, once the screen is locked by xlock, it will turn off the display after five seconds. And it's critical to run this command in background using the ampersand so the X session script can continue. So this is xidle-delay5-nw-program, uh, then the path to the xlog binaries, and then she has a dash dpm st dpms standby of five, that's the five second uh, wait time, and then the dash timeout of uh, 1800 to 30 seconds, uh, 30 minutes. Resume and suspend case. So we currently made your computer auto lock after some time when you are not using it. But what if you put your computer on suspend and leave? This means everyone can open it and it won't be locked. We should trigger the command just before suspending the device so it will be locked upon resume. This operation is possible by giving a sick USR to or user one to xidle at the right time and apmd, the power management daemon of OpenBSD, uh, that is able to execute scripts when suspending. And not only. So there's man pages where this is described. And so she just tells us to create a directory, etc apm, and write etc apm slash suspend with this content. It's a shell script basically, bin sh, and then does pkill usr1 for xidle. Straightforward enough. Make the script executable with change mod plus x, and then restart apmd. Now you should have the screen getting locked when you suspend your computer automatically. Conclusions, locking access to a computer is very important because most of the time we have programs opened, security keys unlocked, SSH, GPG, password managers, etc. And if someone put their hands on it, it can access all files, which is security nightmare. 
Uh, locking the screen is a simple but very effective way to prevent this disaster to happen. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's really cool. Good to have, good to know. I, I, I definitely did a similar thing on my FreeBSD laptop. but You did? Yeah, the, the DevFS uh, interface is a lot less intuitive than just sticking a shell script here. <laughs> this is really nice. I, I'd never heard of Xidle before. I think that's a really cool tool. It's probably part of the X uh, distribution like forever, but it's one of the programs like XIs that no one is using really much, but... People it's use XIs all the time. It's like the you ultimate do? demo tool. How else do you test the test an X server? Oh, of course. Yeah. Why did I forget about that? <laughs> <laughs> of course it's XIs. <laughs> of course it is. What else would it be? Uh, okay. I stand corrected. Uh, <laughs> uh, before we head into the feedback and questions land of this episode, we should mention the sponsor for this episode, which is Tarsnap. Tarsnap gives you all the ways of securing your backups before they leave your computer. And that's the important differentiator to other backup solutions. Backup solutions, there are a lot of them out there, but most of them are either very non-transparent and you kind of don't know how they work or what kind of encryption is employed. And if the people that can get to the backups can encrypt or unencrypt them. With Tarsnap, it's different. Your data is encrypted and uh, with a special key that's on your machine and probably never leaves the machine. Um, uh, there's also some stuff that Tarsnap does to find unique blocks. So it uh, removes the actual data that is redundant from the files you want to back up. It compresses the blocks. And then after it's done all this and encoded the data with the encryption key, then it leaves your computer, not before. So only things that hit the web or AWS cloud in this case, where the backups are stored, only backups that are encrypted leave your computer and nothing in clear text. And there they sit until one fateful day you need them back. And as long as you still have your key, then you can use Tarsnap to download and unencrypt your encrypted backups. And then you have your precious files back on your machine. Tarsnap provides you all the things. If you have used Tar before, it's very similar, very simple. And you can, this is the paranoid part of things. Uh, the source code for the client is available so you can really scrutinize it and tell, oh, if there's a backdoor in there or are they reading my keys somewhere and sending it to some server somewhere. And uh, you will probably not find anything suspicious in there. That's why you can trust Tarsnap so much. That's why we trust it. And the pricing model is also very competitive because it's very cheap to even back up a lot of gigabytes of data. And because of the way that Tarsnap segments the data and finds out duplicate data that it already has backed up, it only stores the, the deltas in the subsequent runs if you're doing daily backups or even hourly ones. Figure out uh, that Tarsnap also has a lot of different clients available from third parties for the BSDs, for Linux, for macOS, for Sequin, for the Windows subsystem for Windows. So plenty of reasons to use Tarsnap to get started. And that's what we uh, hopefully uh, you do this after you listen us praise Tarsnap for uh, the good stuff that it does. Check out the Tarsnap website, documentation, where you can try uh, a dry run, for example, so you can see how much it would actually cost without actually don't not, we're not doing the backup. And so then you can estimate how much it would cost you and it's pay as you go. So you charge your account up and then over time you use it up and you get an email when you run low on uh, your accounts balance. Check out Tarsnap and let us know if you like the service.
All right, here we are back in the feedback and questions part. We love feedback from you. And uh, if you want to send us feedback about the show, any any item you found that we should cover in a future episode or anything about the you know, contents of the episode, whatever it is, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then it has a good chance of reaching a future episode in exactly this spot. The first one is um, from... Uh, oh, Ben, I remember Ben's email. Um, it's about LightDM with Slick Reader. Greetings go out first to Australia. He's sitting out there just waiting for the episode to cover this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Uh, he writes, hi, Alan, Bendick, JT, and Tom, so the whole crew. Uh, not a question, more of an information share, if I may. Certainly. Uh, for the lightweight FreeBSD desktop, people typically want to choose a display manager not linked to GNOME or KDE so they can have a graphical login screen without pulling in large numbers of dependencies. Traditionally, X11 Slim has been popular, and whilst it still works, it hasn't uh, seen any new release since 2014. I wanted to make people aware of an alternative that is still in development and quite pleasing to the eye. X11 slash LightDM and X11 slash SlickGreeter. LightDM provides the backend login slash session services, whilst the SlickGreeter provides a graphical front-end, like the greeter where you can... Uh, well, enter your credentials. We recently made a change to the X11 slash Slick Greeter port so that it automatically modifies the lightdm.conf file to set Slick Greeter as the configured greeter when the package is installed, as long as the lightdm.conf setting is still the default value, which is uh, commented out. Okay, this change hasn't yet made it into the quarterly ports branch. Okay, maybe by now um, that is uh, still or as part now. For those who want to give it a try, it's as simple as running the following from the console. It's, uh, install your graphics drivers and desktop environment separately. It's package install slick-greeter, G-R-E-E-T-E-R, -E 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 and then service lightdm enable and service lightdm start. And uh, he thanks uh, Matt Pilot and Eric BSD of GhostBSD fame for their work in helping maintain these ports. Oh yeah, great. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I and, use Slim and I always worry when it has the package depreciated message yeah it's no. kind of scary will it go away but i never have this again <laughs> <laughs> but it's people like ben and others we mentioned that make ports uh actually work from the first place and then maintain them and update them when there are updates and so that's uh, always appreciated because that gives us the software that we want to run on our machines besides I, the operating system <laughs> yeah I, I tried to make a, a slim theme once and it was not fun there was like no way to test it I could see without uh, logging in and logging out, which wasn't a very scalable yeah, way it's not, to... You have to you know, do I, that I a wonder, lot. I wonder if sick, Slick Greeter is better in that regard. i got to look at this. Thanks for letting us know about that, Ben. Uh, okay, next up we have a, a question from Dave that I don't know the answer to, but I'm going to guess. Uh, for Tom, so it's not oh, for you, Ben. Here we go. <laughs> um, what even is a cloned interface anyway? What gets cloned to where... For bonus points, can you explain why, if you add a cloned uh, LO1, so a second loopback interface, you only see the LO1 traffic on the LO0 interface with TCP dump? Why doesn't it come out LO0 like a sensible person might expect? Well, Dave, I, I don't know. I tried very quickly earlier to see if there was just a simple answer in the man page. Cloned interfaces mean that they aren't real interfaces. And so when you do... Um, ifconfig create. So if you did ifconfig um, bridge create or tap create or epair create or, or, or whatever you do to make a, a VLAN, um, you're, you're not making a physical device. It's not like something pops up inside your machine. 
Um, and I think equally the the kernel is doing some magic so that these are actually just virtualized and you get another interface. And so that's what it means for it to be a cloned interface. Um, the exact specifics of this I've never really dug into because uh, I was going to actually look at fixing some of the issues that were in TAP and TON and Kyle Evans did loads of magic instead and fixed everything. And so I didn't have to. Uh, and so we can say thanks to Kyle Evans. That's why I don't know the answer. Um, for why uh, packets don't come out of the correct um, LO interface with TCP dump, it might be something to do with how jails were originally created. Um, it might be something else. I I'm not sure. Hopefully somebody could write in with the answer, but I think I'm going to take it as a, as a task to go and read about this. And if I can ever figure out how to make my blog work, work again, I'll, I'll write up whatever I find. Uh, thanks, Dave. I really like difficult questions. Not as much as I like easy questions, but I do like difficult questions. They, they challenge us to think further about the, the things we kind of take for granted sometimes. I, I do love the questions I can answer, though. <laughs> that too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, if you know the answer or can provide a bit more background, then our email address, feedback at bsdnauto.tv, is the way to um, connect to us, and we will connect the, the question to your reply. Okay, then. Our final question comes from uh, MJ Rodriguez. Uh, Hello, BSD Now crew. We're a crew today. Uh, I'm sending this email directly so I can have copies of the messages I sent to you guys. Cool. Uh, regardless, I have a question that may involve some speculation on your part, but I'd love to hear the response nevertheless. You've talked about this on the show before about how Sony uses FreeBSD, specifically FreeBSD 9 in their PlayStation 4 console. With that and the long-ago EOL of 9 acknowledged, does this mean that Sony maintains their own build of FreeBSD 9, continuously updated for security and library updates? What kind of maintenance burden would that entail? Thanks for the good show and have a good day. Thank you. Uh, well, well, thank you for the question. Um, this is like medium well documented because there was a, a talk at uh, Asia BSDCon about this. Um, so Sony have their fork of FreeBSD 9 and they forked it at, at a point of time. I don't know what they do to merge security stuff back, but I do know that there's tons, like absolute tons of writing about um, finding exploits in the PS4. Uh, a lot of it is by fail overflow, and I think there were other exploit crews that did this. Um, a lot of the exploits they found came through um, code that Sony wrote to introduce new APIs for developers to use. And so they actually increased the attack service. I think they added something like 100 syscalls to FreeBSD. And that made things slightly more vulnerable. Um, but yeah, I think you, you can't think of Sony like a, a Linux distribution or like like a small FreeBSD uh, like desktop distribution. They are a billion dollar company. They have the money to keep a software development team around uh, and they have the expertise to build an operating system and keep it alive. And so... Um, they, they do this. They do have the nice thing is that they have like a limited area for security to look at because they have their own operating system that is cut down and they can employ people to attack it. And eventually they did add a bug bounty program. But yes, yeah, it's really interesting to think about. I, I don't know. I think they're probably better off in this situation than if they followed FreeBSD to now because it's a, a, an easier engineering task. Uh, I think if they were going to run this forever, um, they might do something more like what Netflix did with like a pulling current every six weeks. Uh, but I think Netflix have a very different uh, security model as well to, to Sony who are putting a device in your house. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Yeah, I think they stripped it. 
also to a certain degree that because I'm, I don't think that you would need, for example, printer drivers on the <laughs> on the Sony PlayStation. So that could be removed. But as FreeBSD advances and moves ahead with version numbers, it's always a catch-up game for them. Uh, and so there's probably another way of uh, tracking this internally uh, that we're not aware of. But yeah, they don't have to. Uh, they don't have to manage third-party software in the same way either. Yeah, true. It's not like but, they're worried about Qt going out of date and have to rebuild KDE. Mm. It's a very specific uh, <laughs> yeah, piece very of specific the platform. kernel and uh, the whole operating system that they have to maintain or catch up with. But it's definitely an interesting um, seeing that the PlayStation runs FreeBSD and the previous versions of the PlayStation also, and probably the future ones as well. Uh, so, and it could very well be that they're on the mailing list and following the discussions and participating. And sometimes, hey, we have this problem we can't figure out ourselves and getting back this way maybe, to the community. Maybe they're even listening now. Oh, here we Hello, go. Oh, Sony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Send us PlayStations. Um, no, we're we're good. Um, so yeah, definitely. It's and a lot of companies who use FreeBSD internally are using the same model because FreeBSD gives you all the building blocks to to run your own version of the operating system if you so desire. But yeah, as long as they don't go out and give a talk at a conference with more details, we can just speculate how it's going to be. But yeah, thanks for the questions. And these are definitely good things we should uh, mention more because some people still don't know that the gaming consoles of this world run FreeBSD internally. Uh, one more thing before we leave you. Uh, we want to do another interview uh, episode with you interviewing us as hosts. And to do that, we need questions from you that we can then read. And if we have collected enough of those questions, we do another recording of these interviews. From uh, So anything that you always wanted to know about us uh, that we haven't covered in previous interviews that we did, now that we have Tom on the show, you can also repeat some of these questions maybe. Um, send these with uh, maybe a subject line of, let's say, um, host interviews, for example, so that we know and can kind of categorize those from the other interview questions or the other questions we get. Send us to feedback at bsdnow.tv as well. And then when we have enough, uh, and you are interested in this and <laughs> you can indicate this by sending us these questions, um, we will do another one maybe for Christmas or New Year's. And that way you know a little bit more about the people behind the microphones. I, I would love to uh, hear about your favorite uh, computer books and particularly old books. And I love Unix books. Um, and I'm happy to answer questions about the respectable library I have of, uh, of yeah. old books. There's always one more book you can read and buy. One more, <laughs> the <library>. five. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Or if it's interesting you, what, what kind of breakfast we had this morning or what's the book we're currently reading, what you know, movies we like and stuff like that. That's not too related to the uh, show, but it could also be show related. like what kind of software you use or things like that. Let us know. We'll be surprised what you uh, want to know. And we, of course, reserve the right to not answer what our first pet's name was or things that help you de decrypt our, you know, security questions. But you know how this goes. Uh, <laughs> fluffy. Um, no, that's... <laughs> Hunter one. That was it, yeah. <laughs> no one can think of that. Um, here we go. So, yeah, your questions to us and uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is the address to send this to. And now we leave you with uh, this episode and 
produce another one for next week.